Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. This episode contains considerable profanity. Discretion is advised. This is Episode 8, Blue Christmas. Hey, Johnny, it's James in North Dakota. Hey. I mean, for lack of better words, excuse me, it's fucked up that it's like that. Um, that she's seen two officers and literally didn't say anything, knowing my dad was out there, passed out, whatever. But that just tells me, like, really, honestly, I mean, you can say whatever. You just didn't give a shit about him and wanted, you know, him to go through whatever he went through. You know what I mean? Whether y'all had a debate, uh, argument, whatever. Um, I don't feel like anybody deserves to go out that way. And me, as a man, um, I would never leave anybody that needs assistance, any type of assistance. I wouldn't turn a blind eye to them if I don't know them from a can of paint. There's no amount of intoxication, no amount of anger that would allow me to do something like that to somebody. This is my, somebody dropped the ball here. Whether he was killed or not, that's just negligence at on so many levels. And then, like, my question is, Who's going to be held accountable for this? Because a man lost his life over something. If it had been the other Sue's, he would have he would have been locked up or incarcerated behind this. So who's going to be held accountable for this? Like, is it the sheriff's office or is it the young lady? At this point, I just want to see something done at at the end of the day. Because again, if it were the shoe on the other foot, something would have been done. Somebody would have felt like he assaulted her sexually or did something, all kind of questions really came up besides them just kind of, you know, like, hey, let her go, you know, it doesn't matter. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight Season 1. One man's personal quest to explain another man's perplexing death. What happened exactly to Victor Newberry of Glen Ellen, North Dakota, found dead next to his vehicle in December of 2014? My name is James Walner. Music by Julia Kent. Visit dakotaspotlight.com for more information. Suggest stories for future seasons, submit tips and questions, see photographs, and sign up for the newsletter. In this episode, we're going to learn a little bit about how evidence is stored by law enforcement in Morton County. We're going to learn more about the man named Victor Newberry. And also, after that, I'd like to tell you about some strange happenings that I uncovered about the night Victor died. These are things that I don't believe the sheriff's office ever looked at closely, and it has to do with the routes and movements that the three strangers made in Glen Ellen after the bars closed. I think you're going to find it all very interesting. But before all that, I want to share this. After releasing episode 7 last week, I got a few emails from listeners. I want to read one of the questions I received now because it's related to something else that I've been wanting to talk about. A woman named Jill asks, 
How did Victor's phone call JR's bar at 2 a.m. if Victor left his phone in the bar when he left? That is a very good question, Jill. To refresh all of our memories, the police report noted that Sharon Hunter, Victor's girlfriend, told Deputy Kreisen that she had been told that Victor had called JR's bar at 2 a.m. and his number was on the caller ID in the bar. But this is basically never mentioned again in the report. Once it's been established that Victor's phone was found in the bar along with his jacket, the mysterious alleged phone call from Victor at 2 a.m. is dropped. The report doesn't indicate if law enforcement ever established if this claim was true or not. And as I mentioned in a previous episode, the owner of JR's bar at the time is no longer alive today, so we can't ask him. This whole time period around 2 a.m. is very interesting. The alleged phone call is not the only curious thing that allegedly happened around that time. What I want to tell you is curious in its own right, but it becomes even more suspicious, perhaps, when you add to it two other things. One, Victor's alleged phone call at 2 a.m., and two, the fact that Tiffany was arrested at 1.54 a.m. while trying to leave Glen Ullen. So here's what I want to tell you. We've heard in the police report that Victor was discovered by a man named Daniel Johnson at around 7.30 in the morning. This man, by the way, originally agreed to meet with me and tell us his story, but he has changed his mind now and declined to be interviewed. The police report says that Johnson was driving along the gravel road Saturday morning when he came across Victor and his car at 7.30 a.m. But the strange thing about all this is that the first media coverage actually contradicts the police report regarding what time Victor was found. On January 3rd, a reporter named Andrew Sheeler, working for the Bismarck Tribune, published the following. I'll post a link to the article on dakotaspotlight.com. The article reads, Glen Ullen, the Morton County Sheriff's Office, is investigating a death with no apparent cause near Glen Ullen. The body of 51-year-old Victor Newberry of Glen Ullen was found at 2.30 a.m. December 27th, Morton County Sheriff Kyle Kirkmeyer said Friday. The article goes on to explain an autopsy will take place and so on, but I'll read that sentence again. The body of 51-year-old Victor Newberry of Glen Ullen was found at 2.30 a.m. December 27th. Not 7.30 a.m., but 2.30 a.m. That's 36 minutes after Tiffany got pulled over, and that's 30 minutes after the alleged phone call that Victor made to the bar. What does this mean? Was this another mistake? A mistake by the journalist Andrew Sheeler? If this reporting was a mistake, why is the mistake 2.30 a.m.? Of all the possible times during our 24-hour day, why did the reporter note that Victor was found 30 minutes after Tiffany's DUI arrest? I tried to contact this reporter with a far-fetched idea in my mind that for some reason he might remember this one event from his reporting career. But this reporter no longer works for the Tribune and I haven't been able to locate him. Maybe Jill or some other curious and sharp mind will help me out and have better luck finding him than I did. Let me know if you do. And while we're talking about that week, the week Victor died, I'll just throw in a couple little timeline notes for you. I simply find them interesting, and I don't know where else to put them in this story. First of all, one interesting fact about this time was that one week before Victor died, his girlfriend, Sharon Hunter, got a DUI herself while driving Victor's vehicle, the same one that Victor was found next to. 
She was arrested for drunk driving late one night by the highway patrol along Interstate 94 between Glen Ullen and Bismarck. In fact, I won't go into all the details, but if there's one thing I can say about the women in Victor's life or the women that crossed his path, at least here in North Dakota, one overriding and consistent theme or pattern that I discovered was a pattern of DUIs. It's almost as if if you were a woman and you spent significant time with Victor, sooner or later you would be arrested for driving under the influence of alcohol. Another interesting thing about the week he died is that Victor passed away while one man was sheriff of Morton County, but much of his investigation was done while a different man was sheriff of Morton County. How, you ask? Well, Victor just happened to die right before the new year, and Sheriff Kyle Kirkmeyer was sworn in as sheriff on December 31st. Earlier that year, Kirkmeyer defeated the previous sheriff, Dave Shipman, in the November elections. Victor died right during the week when this transition of authority took place. I was able to interview the previous sheriff, Dave Shipman, who served as sheriff in Morton County for several years. I asked him about how police evidence is ordinarily handled and stored, and so on. I was curious, of course, how the recorded interviews with Tiffany and her friends, as well as the surveillance video, might have been misplaced or discarded. Here is a short portion of that interview. For the sake of my listeners, the evidence, there's an evidence room at the sheriff's office, yes. is that correct? Yes. Could you just give us a picture? I mean, is it, you know, people like me who only see things on TV, is this, is this dusty dungeon underneath the sheriff's office that... Well, <laughs> um, within the sheriff's office, there's, you know, the, the sheriff's office is on one side of the building, the police department is on the other side. Right. The evidence cage is, it's a secure room that only one person is supposed to have access to. Uh, because of what they call what we call this chain of chain of custody. So, for example, um, if I am a responding officer, I'm collecting evidence from a scene of any crime. Um, we have individually locked or individual lockers um, that I put this evidence into a locker, for example, and it's locked. I have the key. The evidence technician has the other key. When you come in, if you're the evidence custodian, you remove that evidence, and then the deputy signs off that he's released it at this day and time, um, and the purpose that he released it to the evidence room. If you're the evidence custodian, you sign off on it as collecting it on this day at this time, and then you move it into the evidence room. Depending on what that evidence is that's collected, you know whether it's alcohol, whether it's a, a bag of marijuana, whether it's a handgun, whatever, um, if a person is charged with, with, let's say, for possession of methamphetamine, that evidence then is, there's arrangements made by the evidence technician to take that evidence over to our crime lab to get analyzed. Okay. Same thing with firearms. And, and what about uh, digital stuff like? That's all computerized. Computerized. Yeah. Like, for example, the in-car videos. Yes. Um, that's put onto a server. Uh, and then it gets put onto a CD, and that CD gets put onto, um, put into the evidence room. It does? Yes. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes, get the episodes early, and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. 
Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. Let's learn more about Victor's life and also what his family thinks about the way he died. After that, I'll share with you the things I uncovered about some of the strangers as well as their potentially suspicious movements that night. Victor Newberry met his wife, Nikita, when they were both teenagers. At the time of his death, they had been separated for many years, but they were never legally divorced. I asked Nikita Newberry to tell me a little bit about the man I'd been thinking about for the last few months and whom she'd been married to for decades. Well, I've always known him to be uh, generous, to be very helpful with others, um, anyone that needed his help. He was um, very quiet. If you didn't know him, if he didn't know you, um, you would have to, I guess, kind of like break the ice with him. And once he got comfortable with you, you know, he would talk to you and he would open up because he could be a very private person at times. Um, he could be very cold. He could be very distant as well when he was hurt or when he was angry. Um, and yes, he could drink. He came from a mixed heritage. His mother is German um, and his father is African-American. Um, I am half Indian and I'm half black. So we're very multicultural, as you can hear. You look at me, you see a black woman. I uh, represent myself as a black woman. Both Victor's mother and father had had children before they met each other. So Victor had several half-siblings. On his father's side, he had an older sister named Carolyn, who was black, and who would ultimately become almost a type of surrogate mother for him later in life. He also had two half-sisters on his mother's side, Martha and Anne, who were German and white. Martha, apparently, took her own life at the age of 17. But Victor's closest sibling early in life was his little brother Johnny, not to be confused with his son Johnny, of course. Johnny was, oh my gosh, he was like Victor's everything. That was his baby brother, and he loved him to death. And certainly, Victor's little brother, Johnny, needed that love. They both needed the love they had for each other because, sadly, they were not getting the kind of love children need from their parents. He came from a very painful and uh, dysfunctional family. Uh, He comes from a family that uh, has a history with drinking. So his mom and dad... Um, unfortunately, were alcoholics. He suffered from a lot of abandonment, emotional abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse um, as a child coming up. And when I got him, he was a wild child, very determined to have his own way about things in life. And we got married and he was uh, shipped to the military because he was such a wild child. Uh, He had gotten into some trouble Uh, led the cops on a wild car chase. 
when they finally caught him, they gave him an opportunity to either go to the military for 10 years or do 10 years in prison. So he opted to go into the military. I traveled with him to some extent. My time overseas, it was beautiful, but it was also very heartbreaking. He was a heavy drinker. Um, it was more like he was trying to fight the demons of things that um, from the past. And he just never healed. He never uh, purged himself of those things. And they created a lot of dissension in our marriage and our relationship. And that was uh, the causing of why we didn't stay together because of the level of pain uh, that he was in. The pain that Victor was carrying with him was deeply rooted in the fact that his mother abandoned him when he was a young boy. She did this over the Christmas holiday one year, and until the day he died, coincidentally perhaps the day after Christmas, for Victor, the Christmas season was never a time he associated with joy or celebration. Christmas was very significant for him in the worst kind of way. His mother walked away um, on Christmas when he was 10. She said she was going to the store to get a loaf of bread and a six-pack of beer, and he never saw her again. And um, he wasn't a holiday person, I guess, just due to the hurt and the level of disappointment. For a very brief time, Victor and his little brother Johnny were reunited with their mother. She was no longer with their father and instead was dating a new man. She was dating um, a white man, so she did not want him to know that she had children of mixed blood. So when, they, when he came, she requested them to hide under the bed or in the closet, something to that effect. And it was just always heartbreaking because he loved his mother, but he hated his mother. And it made it very difficult for him in relationships because of the damage. And he hated his father as well because his father was very abusive. Um, his father was an alcoholic and um, he would beat his mother and he would beat uh, the children. While Victor was in the military, his brother Johnny got killed in New Jersey. We got a call around the holidays that uh, he was killed. They found him uh, face down in a mud puddle dead off of Route 22 in New Jersey. His body had been riddled with bullets, and my husband just absolutely snapped, and he lost his mind. Victor and Nikita returned to the United States to bury his younger brother, Johnny. Victor went looking for his mother, the woman who had walked out on him on Christmas and who had at times asked her kids to hide under the bed because she didn't want her new boyfriend to know that her kids were half black. And when they called for his mother to come to the funeral, she said she had no sons. She didn't know what anybody was talking about, and she hung up the phone. So this further did not help the situation at all. The drinking, some of the drugs, um, all of these things kind of helped mask the pain that he could never um, heal from or would never let go of. Nikita tried to get Victor to get therapy or somehow deal with his abandonment issues. I couldn't convince him to do any of those things. He just continued to drink. Um, he was promiscuous. He was unfaithful. Um, he would disappear for months, years at a time in the relationship. I just got to the point where I was just like, you know, I can't do this anymore with you. And I, I'm done. I'm over it. 
Finally, Nikita got a lawyer and tried to divorce Victor, but he just wouldn't have it. Because he told somebody, he said, she can file all the divorces that she wants, but I'm never going to divorce her. And perhaps that is not so surprising. Considering Victor's past and the fact that his mother just left him one day on Christmas, considering his abandonment issues, why would this man be eager to sign paperwork that, at least from his own wounded perspective, likely represented a type of legal abandonment from yet another woman in his life. I bounced that theory off of Nikita. I have to agree with you on that. And um, although he was very good at abandoning people, he could not handle the abandonment um, in itself. Up until this point, I was under the impression that Victor's family were not aware of the three strangers at all. In other words, I didn't know that the Morton County Sheriff's Office had shared some of that information with any of them. As you will now hear, Nikita was told some, if not most, of the information that's in the police report. However, as you will see, she did not quite get all the details. I asked Nikita to tell me what she knew of the story about Tiffany Elwood being out at the spot where Victor died. Um, She claimed that she could not get him up. They never said anything about him being unconscious. They just said that um, she wasn't able to assist him getting up, but she failed to report that um, he had been there after she had been arrested for the DUI. And, you know, once she was released and things of that nature, I think that's when she actually, you know, spoke to the authorities about um, him being left on the side of the road in a ravine to die. I asked Nikita how she felt that authorities had handled the case from her perspective. I will say this. um, The state examiner's office, they were very, uh, very consistent in correspondence with me. I guess what you would say, want to say as gentle as possible through the whole situation, the uh, detectives that were involved in the case, you know, basically just giving you the basic step-by-step, blow-by-blow information as um, it was relatable to them to relate to us. Sounds like you feel they were being very professional, in other words. They were very professional, but... At the same time, there's just always been something in the back of my mind that this does not sit right with this whole situation, Um, especially this woman, because um, I definitely want her to understand that no matter what your situation is, your circumstances, you do have to be accountable and responsible for your consequences and your actions, and your actions were heinous. That's my, that's just my opinion. I would love to ask her, what were you thinking? Um, you treated him more or less like he was dirt, like he was nothing. And you left him like an injured dog on the side of the road. Why would you do this? Don't you have any consideration or compassion for someone else besides yourself? Why would his wallet be on the side of them? They could have robbed him. I don't know. Um, I say like this, when you go to a bar, you don't know who you meet. You don't know what their background is. If this person is not someone you see on a day-to-day basis, um, this person just showed up in town, uh, sat down to the bar. No one in town knows this person. Anything's possible. Anything. Did the police tell you about the blood? No, they did not. 
Let me ask you that again. The police did not tell you there was blood at the scene? No, they did not. And where was the blood found? I told Nikita that Deputy Kreisen's incident report noted small amounts of blood on Victor's shirt, face, and wrist, and that the deputy had assisted the detective in gathering blood evidence. I asked Nikita if she had considered the scenario that Johnny had talked to me about. What if the story was the other way around? What if Tiffany had passed out? What if Victor walked back to town and Tiffany died? Two days later, he walks into the sheriff's office and tells him that he was with the girl that they found dead, the one with her pants pulled down a little bit, her wallet laying on the ground next to her. I'm wondering if would law enforcement or society in general have have treated this event the same way? No, absolutely not. Without an equivocal doubt in my mind, that wouldn't have happened. And being the fact that he is the only black man in a white and in a all white town, and there is prejudice there, hell no. A woman partially uh, exposed, her wallet on the side, left for dead. No, no, never. In jail, he'd be under the jail. Almost white doesn't cut it. You're either white or you're not. Let's be clear. I asked Nikita what she would say or ask Tiffany Elwood if she ever had the opportunity. Um, uh, your morality sucks. You have absolutely no morality because you, you didn't even make the conscious effort to do it um, immediately when you got within where you could speak to multiple people. If you had enough memory thought to talk to someone when you got back to the bar, then you had enough time to call and tell uh, the police department that there is a man that is unable to get up. He was breathing when I left him. Can you please, please go check to see if he's all right? I tried to assist him. I tried to help get him up, but I couldn't. He was too heavy. And just not leave him there, that is a wanton disregard for someone else's fucking life. Excuse my French. Here's my thing with all of this. This is what I was told by the police. I didn't know that she drove back to the, I didn't even know she went back to the bar. I was just told basically that um, they gave me a general synopsis of what obviously they wanted me to know, and which was that uh, she left, um, she got a DUI, she was arrested, and um, after she... I guess, was released, then she decided she wanted to tell them about this situation. And my question to all of this was that, you know, what were your real reasons for not expressing to anyone that you left a man injured on the side of a road, unable to assist himself, you were unable to assist him, or you didn't want to assist him, because I honestly believe the bitch didn't hire to help him. I believe she just left him. I, 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 I'm, I'm sorry, but I just honestly believe she did not make any effort to help him, because it, it kind of corroborates with the rest of the story. If you decide to tell them several hours later, you didn't even think to fucking help him. You just left him. And you were praying to God that nobody had to know this little dirty secret of whatever it was that transpired between the two of you. Only four people know, and two are not people. You knew, he knew, God knew, and the damn devil. I'm actually really happy about this 
because, you know, there were a few people, you know, that reached out to us and expressed their condolences. And I understood they knew him one way. I knew him another way, but I'm glad that they knew him the way when he passed. And that meant something that people did care. I know that. And Donna expressly loved him. And, you know, I spoke with Donna after he passed and, um, you know, I wished her condolences because even though I carried her le- my, his legal name, she had the love for him that a woman would have for a man when he passed, even though they weren't together. And I felt very bad for her. And I still do. Um, I want to say thank you for being human. I want to thank you for taking the time to think enough that somebody should speak on a dead man's behalf that can no longer speak for himself. And to give me this, this means a lot. Thank you. After speaking with Victor's son, Johnny, and his wife, Nikita, I felt like I had a lot to digest. I agreed with the things they were saying. I found it absolutely incomprehensible that one person would leave another person out in the cold, like Tiffany apparently had done. I couldn't imagine the level of intoxication I would need to be under to do such a thing, but I felt confident that, to do so, I'd have to be so drunk that I wouldn't even be able to walk in the first place. And you know that expression, if something seems too good to be true, then it probably isn't true? Well, I thought, maybe if something seems too bizarre to be true, maybe it isn't true. But my reluctance to trust that this was an accurate portrayal of how Victor died was for me more out of necessity and self-preservation than it was some kind of conspiracy theory. I really just didn't want to accept that a person would abandon another person in this fashion. But also, to be honest, I did remember my acquaintance Phil's words when he said, it was all just a cover-up. So I latched on to another expression, and it's actually a wise one. There are always two sides to every story. I thought about that expression a lot. If there are always two sides to every story, I told myself, maybe Tiffany's side of the story would explain things in a way that would make this whole event with Victor's death feel somehow at least a little less tragic and sad. I needed to hear Tiffany's side of the story. All I knew was that, according to a police report, Tiffany came to the sheriff's office and gave them this story. I knew it, so to speak, because I had read it in a written police report, a report that detailed a detective's interviews with Tiffany, Ashley, and Dave. But I also knew that that interview was audio and video recorded. But when I made a request to view the interview recording, the sheriff's office was not able to locate it. And suddenly, I admit, Phil's story about a cover-up didn't seem quite as crazy as it once had. The following is the explanation I got from the Morton County State's Attorney's Office regarding this missing video. Assistant State's Attorney Brian Grossinger wrote me the following in an email. Dear Mr. Walner, The surveillance video from JR's bar and the recordings of the interviews of three individuals were made and maintained by Lieutenant Sharp at the time of the event. These items are no longer in the possession of Lieutenant Sharp or the Morton County Sheriff's Office. They were not deleted on purpose. Nevertheless, Lieutenant Sharp has made considerable effort to locate them without success. 
There have been IT difficulties over the time since this investigation. It appears the items were lost as a result of those difficulties. So I went on a hunt, a search for three strangers. These days, people talk a lot about digital footprints. But there's another type of footprint that is much more effective to track a person, or at least people who break the law, namely criminal footprints, public records from the courts, good old-fashioned paper trails. And sure enough, both Tiffany and her blonde friend Ashley left significant criminal footprints for me to follow. My plan was to simply sift through as many court records I could find to find a phone number or an address, and then I'd call one of them or knock on their door, and I'd ask them, was that really how it went down that night? As it turns out, Ashley is the only one of the three that still lives in North Dakota, so I started with her. Ashley Omdahl, again, not her real name, was born in 1985, so she was 29 years old on the night Victor died. I sifted through a pile of court records regarding Ashley Omdahl. On one arrest report, her address is listed as Mandan, North Dakota, but I would quickly learn that Ashley never lived in one spot for very long. In 2017, she couldn't keep out of trouble. On April 3rd, she's arrested. She's driving while intoxicated, and her license is suspended. She applied for and was approved for legal counsel. On that document, she listed a phone number, but when I called that number, it was disconnected. In that document, it states that she is unemployed because she's in treatment for addiction. It doesn't say what kind, but based on what I would learn, I'm assuming alcohol. She had zero dollars to her name, her car was worth $200, she said. But the very next day, Ashley got arrested again. Why? Well, as part of her conditions for release, she was required to go to the sheriff's office to take a breath test every day. On April 5th, she failed her breath test. She was arrested and then released. Two days later, she's issued a warning. Why? She almost failed a breath test. Nineteen days later, she gets another warning. Her breath test came back at 0.16, just under the threshold. A week later, she fails, and she's arrested again. By the summer of 2018, Ashley is still struggling. Arrested on June 1st for violating the rules of her parole, something tells me she was drinking. You have arrived at your destination. The route guidance is now finished. I wrote down and drove to every address in every one of those documents. Would 1406 still be upstairs too, right? Yeah, I'd go upstairs, man. I bet it, that's what it's for. Thank you. I knocked on neighbors' doors, but no luck. Sorry to bother you. I'm looking for... Oh, I'm not sure. And then one day, I discovered something in one of those police reports that, to this day, I still don't know how I missed from the very beginning. It was something very pertinent to Victor Newberry. Ashley Omdahl, I discovered, got a DUI on December 27, 2014, in Glenola, North Dakota, at 1 a.m. Yes, the night Victor died. Now, if you are confused, that's okay, because I was too. 
After all, didn't the police report say that it was Tiffany that got the DUI, not Ashley? Well, the answer is this. Both Tiffany and Ashley got separate DUIs in separate cars that night while they both attempted to leave Glen Ullen. Ashley got a DUI at 1 a.m., which is when the bars close in North Dakota. Tiffany got a DUI at 1.54, almost a full hour later. If you're wondering what Tiffany did between 1 a.m. when the bars close and 1.54 a.m. when she got her DUI, I promise you I was wondering that too. And we will get to that later on when we come back to Tiffany, her movements that night, her DUI, and her criminal record. But for now, let me tell you about Ashley Omdahl and a very, very curious thing about her DUI and the route she took that night. Ashley got stopped by Highway Patrol Officer Jeremy Meisel at 1.01 a.m. Dave Fry, Tiffany's brother, was sitting in the passenger seat. Tiffany Elwood was not with them. The highway patrolman had been driving southeast into Glen Ullen on County Road 139 from the direction of the town of Hebron, North Dakota and Interstate I-94. He noticed Ashley's light-colored Honda approaching the intersection of County Road 139 and South Avenue. She was driving west on South Avenue, away from downtown Glen Ullen. Remember this intersection because it comes up later again in this story too, and it's potentially very important. Remember, too, that according to the written version of the interviews Detective Sharp made with the three strangers, only Tiffany was with Victor at the spot north of town. The assumption, then, is that Dave and Ashley never left the bar, or at least they were never at the spot where Victor was found dead. Nor is there any mention in a police report that Dave and Ashley were aware that Victor or Tiffany were ever out at that spot. I will put a map on dakotaspotlight.com to make clear where this intersection is, where Victor Newberry was found dead, the odd route Ashley took that night, and the spot where she was arrested. This map will also indicate where the turnoff onto the gravel road was and how close this turnoff is to the intersection where the highway patrolman first spotted Ashley. Ashley would have passed this dark and somewhat obscure turnoff probably 15 seconds before she arrived at that intersection. At this intersection, and depending on which direction you're driving, a motorist can do the following four things. You can drive southwest on Highway 49 towards Elgin, the place where Dave and Tiffany came from that day. As Ashley approached this intersection from the east, after coming to a full stop at the stop sign, she could have driven straight through the intersection to continue on this path to Elgin. That would seem like a logical path for them since that is where Dave would need to go to get home. A motorist could also drive northwest on County Road 139 to Interstate I-94 to Bismarck or Dickinson or elsewhere. For Ashley to do this, she would have made a right turn. Or a person could drive southeast onto County Road 139 into the south side of Glen Ullen. For Ashley to do this, she would have turned left. Finally, of course, you can travel in the opposite direction that Ashley was headed east into Glen Ullen on South Avenue towards downtown and docks and JR's bar. As I said, Ashley was driving west on South Avenue, so she was coming from the bars towards this intersection. And as I said, about 15 seconds before arriving at this intersection, she would have passed the turnoff to the gravel road where Victor was found dead the next morning. 
But after stopping at the stop sign, Ashley didn't drive straight through the intersection towards Elgin, where Dave and Tiffany came from that day. And in fact, Ashley didn't make a right turn or a left turn. As the highway patrolman approached the intersection from the north, he witnessed Ashley pull into the intersection and then make a U-turn and head back east on South Avenue. She headed back the direction she came from. And I don't know about you, but when I make a U-turn while driving, it is usually because I've driven too far and I've missed a turnoff. But we can't know where she was really headed, because before she really got anywhere, the highway patrolman turned on his lights and pulled her over. The spot where Ashley was arrested is incredibly close to where Victor Newberry was lying exposed to the elements at the time. According to Google Maps, as a crow flies, it was 1,737 feet, or 529 meters, away. While Victor lay out in the open, Ashley Omdahl stood on the side of the street taking a sobriety test, which she failed. I would point out that even though Victor's vehicle was running at the time with the lights on, at least according to the police report, due to the fact that he was down in a ditch, it's most probable that the highway patrolman, as he walked Ashley through the sobriety test, could not see Victor's car nor its lights just north of him. And it's almost too painful, really, to even consider the fact that if Victor was possibly still alive at the time, lying on his back, he may have been able to sense or maybe even see the dashing blue and red lights of the highway patrolman's squad car as they splattered the clouds above. If he did somehow sense that some kind of emergency vehicle was close by, it is heartbreaking to consider what he might have been thinking or hoping or praying for at the time. I wondered, why did Ashley make a U-turn at that intersection? And I also wondered, where was Tiffany Elwood while all of this was happening? I knew I needed to ask Ashley why she made that U-turn, and I needed to find Tiffany, too. I looked for Ashley in Dickinson and Mandan and Bismarck, North Dakota. I even tried calling a parole office. Finally, one day, I found a phone number for an Omdahl family. Again, not their real name. I called that number and left a message. Basically, I said, I'm looking for Ashley Omdahl, and I'd like to interview her. If you know her, please give her my number. And a week or so later, I got a text message on my cell phone. Hi, is this James? This is Ashley Omdahl. I've used a voice actor to narrate Ashley's texts. I called Ashley and I told her what I was doing. We spoke only briefly. I told her that I thought Victor's story needed to find its proper resting place. I asked her to please allow me to interview her. She told me to let her think about it, and so I did. When I didn't hear back from her, I sent her a text message. Hi, Ashley. What are your thoughts on meeting with me for an interview or over the phone? Okay, I mean, thinking about it and all... I don't know. I'm a little weirded out by the whole thing and don't really know much or anything. Not sure I want to get involved. I've never thought about it till you mentioned it. I thought, well, if she won't meet with me, maybe I can get some information from her by texting. Hi there, Ashley. Do you mind if I ask you a couple questions by texting? For example, I don't understand if Dave went to jail, too. 
Dave was leaving with me, but then we got pulled over, I got DUI, Tiffany got pulled over in her own car, and also got a DUI that night at about the same time. Also, what keys did Tiffany lose that night? Obviously not her car keys, since she drove. I guess now that I think about it, I have no idea. I thought it was car keys, too, but that makes no sense. Not sure. Ashley, I don't suppose you have Tiffany's phone number. I don't. I haven't heard from her or her brother at all since around then. But you're friends with her on Facebook. Could you ask her to call me? I don't use my Facebook. Haven't in about two years. If you look at my last logon, it's a long time ago. I stay away from social media nowadays. Sorry. Sorry to bother you again, but I forgot an important thing. During my interviews in Glenelg, some people seem to think that you left with Victor. They say the blonde girl. According to the police report I've read, that's incorrect. So I thought it would be awesome to get your input so we could squish that rumor. You can set the story straight on that, I mean, for my listeners. Also, if you don't want to meet with me, we could do this over the phone. Or we could meet or talk on the phone, and instead of recording it, I could just take notes and then summarize what you said for my listeners. I never heard from Ashley again. Next time on Dakota Spotlight. She could have been mad at me because I called the cops. Does this girl look familiar? Oh yeah, that's her. I don't know, some guy walked me to his house and was being a creep and I jetted out. Yeah, because I wasn't sure if they had their clothes on or not when I was walking towards them. I had no idea where we were, how we got there. And they got in, They got into it while they stood up, and my friends didn't know if I was in trouble or not, so they all stood up. I was just the drunk native girl at the bar. It wasn't so much that she was really drunk. She was very emotional. I told them when I got a DUI. I told them. You have been listening to Dakota Spotlight Season 1, The Story of Victor Newberry. Music provided graciously by Julia Kent. Visit juliakent.com to learn more about Julia and her amazing work. Dakota Spotlight is produced by Everything Midwestern LLC of North Dakota. My name is James Walner. Visit dakotaspotlight.com for more information. If you find yourself enjoying this podcast and would like to help support it and maybe make possible a season two, visit dakotaspotlight.com slash support to find out the many ways you can help out. Fellow podcasters, writers, researchers, investigators, and other curious and restless souls interested in a possible collaboration in the future, feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening and see you next time.
Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.